My name is Knut Peterson. Thanks, Diane, for your informative talk. Can you maybe speculate uh, as to why Alberta is not interested in being regulated? Well, I think uh, Alberta um, l likes to control its own business community. And uh, my observation with uh, you know, the Alberta Securities Commission, their official statement is that they're afraid that if Central Canada takes over uh, the National Securities Commission, that they will not be cognizant of the special needs of the uh, junior energy business, as an example. Uh, and so they feel that it's necessary to have uh, remaining control within the province of Alberta. Um, you know, my observation in the past is that the Alberta Securities Commission uh, is one of the weaker commissions from an enforcement point of view. Uh, we have never seen a circumstance where a senior executive of Alberta has been subject to a prosecution. And so I, I would think that they very much like to control their own uh, with respect to who gets investigated and when they get investigated. That would be my own unofficial view of that. Now, I would also say that if I were an officer of Alberta, um, I would be opposed to a National Securities Commission that was going to be controlled by the, by the Ontario executives uh, because uh, it would be my opinion that they are uh, preoccupied with the control of uh, Bay Street and people's perception of activity uh, in the world going on in Canada. And I, you know, I, I would not want the National Securities Commission to be dominated by Ontario executives. I was curious, you, they were talking about Hong Kong. Oh, sorry, my name is Melinda. And they were discussing, you said, on the, one of the better countries of the world being Hong Kong, Japan. Now, why are those structures so much better than our structures? Do they have things in place that we can and, or is it basically that structure that what you're talking about? Um... Well, I think the reason I believe we are showing so high in corruption is that we do not have any kind of securities crime policing or effective securities regulation enforcement. And so if you can get away with it and at the highest levels and you control the laws and you control the policing of those laws, then you get to do what you want above the law. Uh, and and I you know I I can't I'm not experienced enough to know whether Russia South Africa and Kenya operate in that manner. Uh, I can say in the United States there is a definite perception amongst the players in the marketplace that if you step out of bounds that you are going to uh, someone will complain about your action and that while they may have missed it in the first round you're going to go to jail and you're going to go to jail for 25 years. Um, and so I think there is a, a, a little bit higher uh, regard for that possibility because I know that when I've dealt with any matters that are cross-border, the difference between dealing with legal counsel in Canada and investment bankers in Canada versus uh, specialists and experts in the United States, I can assure you that in the U.S. they will never, ever lie um, on a matter that involves uh, uh, transparency on an investment product because if they're found to have lied, they can go to prison, whereas it's routinely the case here that uh, there is omissions and deceptions uh, from, you know, the professionals. In fact, you know, I'd go for, so far as to say that the Bay Street law, law community is very much involved in papering it 
and uh, you know we just don't get very high level uh, prosecutions going on. Um, some of these other countries, uh, I, you know, we are you know for the, we are the only country in the world that does not have a national securities commission, and I would say we're probably the only country in the world that doesn't have a financial fraud functioning police system. I can't imagine that another country would be like us. Yes, my name is Bob Giesbrecht. I'm, I'm just curious, given the reality that we have a minority parliament, you mentioned that you've been lobbying the government. What do you hear from the opposition? Because nothing is going to get done unless there's some support. Like your, your minimum sentencing is being held up. Well, when we were at the Justice Committee in December, um, I can only quote what I was told by Wayne Marston, was it, was it Wayne? No, I'm sorry, Joe Colmartin. Joe, Joe Colmartin is a new Democratic Party member from Windsor, I believe, and he is the justice critic for the new Democratic Party. And uh, he, when we gave uh, our recommendations with respect to the, the minimum standards, he indicated that every party and every member of that justice committee agreed with uh, Bill C-52. And so I believe that uh, he would not have spoken in that matter if it had not already been determined. And he was looking for us to toughen it up more. Uh, I can also say that the liberal representatives of the Justice Committee that were present uh, were also looking for ways to improve it, not to loose, loosen it. So what's the problem in passing it then? Uh, Proving. <laughs> Basically, it, it was the well, It's been on the table for a long time. Um, no, it was first proposed in September of 2009, and the, yeah. the legislation was first um, presented in its present draft form, I think, in November. Because and then it pro and then when it would have gone through more readings, it, uh, Parliament was prorogued. Because that would seem to be the essence of the problem. I mean, as long as the slaps on the wrist are the penalties. I don't think you're going to see any police forces do, do, uh, uh, designating a lot of resources to something that, you know, the guy's going to get six months community service. I mean, really, how much resource can you put into something that society obviously doesn't take seriously? Yeah, I guess my feeling is, given that what Joe Martin has said, all four parties support this, they didn't wrap this bill with other criminal code amendments, such there is a lot of opposition to stronger sentencing for youth crime, for example, from the block. And so the fact that they presented this bill specific to white-collar crime gives me optimism that all the parties can support it because I believe that the message has been well received by all four parties in Ottawa that they need to crack down on crime. But what we do not know yet, and certainly if they propose to put the police under the National Securities Commission, we're concerned that the conservative minority is uh, not serious about enforcement. As I said in my talk, I don't think if you have very high sentencing, but no, nobody uh, who's at a substantial level in business can be uh, subject to an investigation and prosecution, then it doesn't matter that it's 14 years. We're not going to have, like, uh, Ken, Ken Lay and Fastow go to jail, or we're not going to have a Bernie Ebers go to the equivalents of those people in our country go to jail because there isn't even an investigation that starts. We don't even have the competency 
you know, for, to uh, even begin an investigation on some of these matters. And those are correctable, you know, that's correctable. Oh. If there is the will, well, part of it's money. We're asking for $6 million for the Securities Crime Unit. Quebec put $6 million for 20 new fraud officers. Uh, we would say every province put in $6 million, hire 20 specialists, get some specialized crown prosecutors, give them the budget to hire outside forensic experts as necessary. And uh, it's whether you as a country uh, and public are going to push to have this justice rendered. Thank you. I'm Bob Babke, and I, um, I don't want to jump into tomorrow ahead of time, but I, I, and I don't know whether I'm going to with this question. If I do, uh, correct me. Um, you've talked about exemptions by the um, Securities Commissions, and that's led to a lot of problems. But there's a huge exemption that was provided to uh, the players by our Supreme Court of Canada and the Ontario justice system uh, by taking away the rights uh, of individuals who lost money against the brokers for fraudulent misrepresentation and even more serious fraud. Um, how do you rank that in this picture of uh, exemption and what's happening to people? When, well, I guess that's why I'm on a public education program, going everywhere to anyone who will listen, mostly to those who have lost money due to it, whether it's through your tax base loss or whether it's through individuals. What happened in the asset-backed commercial paper, because it was such a large problem of $32 billion, I believe that the governments who were exposed collectively decided that this was going to be a backdoor bailout for the international banks. And uh, what happened was that the legal counsel, uh, Purdy Crawford and Goodman's LLP, went to the international banks and negotiated the legal release up front. We call it the mother of all legal releases. We have never in Canadian history seen such an all-encompassing uh, legal release that said you could not sue any of the international banks, any of the Canadian dealers, Dominion Bond Rating Service, any of those financial sponsors. Uh, and so we feel that this is an ominous precedent for the country because now the next time they sell another uh, toxic structured product, they'll just take it into the bankruptcy court and ask for one of those ABCP releases. And so we've effectively potentially protected the investment industry of Canada from civil lawsuit on systemic fraud. Uh, and so that's, again, while that has now been done, there's nothing we can do about it. We can certainly speak up and request that the bankruptcy laws be amended such that this cannot happen again, that the judge has the power to prevent such uh, uh, an all-encompassing uh, immunity from lawsuit against those who perpetrated uh, fraud and, or, at best, neg uh, gross negligence in, in the design of their products. But if we don't speak out, that's the precedent that sits. I had a question from the back of the room to ask you if you could name some of the individuals or organizations that were victims that bought into this asset okay. back paper, like across Canada. Or sure. Uh, well, starting in uh, Alberta, we had the Alberta Treasury, $1.2 billion. Uh, we had the University of Calgary at $18 million. We had the University of Alberta at uh, $50 million. 
Um, I think that's pretty much it for, uh, we had uh, hundreds of Albertans at the retail level throughout Alberta, rural, city, Edmonton, Calgary. Um, now moving to uh, British Columbia, we had $122 million at the University of British Columbia. Uh, in uh, Ontario, we had the Ontario Treasury at uh, $750 million. Ontario uh, Hydro One, Toronto Hydro, City of Hamilton, $100 million. Uh, City of Hamilton is a little bit bigger than uh, Lethbridge, I think, uh, actually probably a lot. What's your population? How much? 85. Well, Hamilton has 300,000, um, so proportionally um, not far off. They, you know, they have 100 million. Uh, in um, in uh, Quebec, the Case de Depot, owned, which is the government money manager for the Quebec pension plan, it had uh, $13 billion. Uh, and uh, the University of McGill had a lot. Uh, for those of you who work for the Federal Civil Service, uh, the Public Service Pension Plan had $2 billion of this and is taking at least a billion-dollar loss. Um, some of you may know that uh, the public service plan is being targeted for benefit cuts, uh, and that's uh, the civil, uh, the public service alliance is gearing up for a massive fight with the federal government to protect the benefits of the public service plan. And uh, the public service plan had four billion dollars of toxic assets. They own two billion of this asset-backed commercial paper, and they own two billion of the credit default swaps. Uh, on the wrong side, they were sellers, so they've taken big hits um, there. Um, those are the ones that I, you know, come to my mind. Oh, uh, the government of Yukon, it was $38 million um, as well. Uh, so for sure in Quebec, we're going to see ma major benefit cuts or huge contribution increases. Ontario Teachers Pension Plan was hit by about $60, $60 million. Uh, I, 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 um, I estimated tomorrow I'm going to be saying that the losses to Canada are in the order of... Um, $16 billion across all those different um, organizations. And so um, in Alberta, it's a half a billion dollar loss in the province of Alberta, including Lethbridge. And uh, for the country as a whole, I'm saying about $16 billion. So as you know, we have a $60 billion, you know, $55 billion federal deficit, and we have deficits in every province. Um, and so we have our finance minister indicating that he's going to have to, you know, deal with uh, cuts in the public, public service plan benefits, cuts in the likely in the public, public service as well, and, and social spending. And, you know, these kinds of products we can't afford at the government level either. Um, because, uh, you know, if you have your treasury savings or your pension plan tied up through t uh, 2017, you're going to have to, you know, make new loans or cut other programs elsewhere. So that's why uh, we're saying, and, and also President Obama is saying in the United States, that we're going to have to gear down on the financial industry. Uh, and uh, remove the incentives that they have had for the delivery of toxic products and for the um, ownership of, of them on their own balance sheets for the purpose of producing executive bonuses. we got time. One more question. Who would like to be the lucky person? We've got, we got more time than that. Okay. Diane, I noticed uh, your husband is in pretty good shape. Uh, 
But even at that, do you, have you had to hire? Because you're up against some pretty big, uh, powerful people here. Have you felt any resistance to what you're doing? Uh, um, what I, I am surprised by... Uh, my ability to speak out and to not be subject to personal verbal attack. Um, and I guess I attribute that, uh, first of all, um, you know, I don't, I'm not employed by a major bank or other corporate employer, so no one can threaten to terminate me because they can't terminate me from self-employment. Um, so that's one good advantage I have, but also I have had 30 years experience uh, working for two of the major investment banks uh, at the highest levels, uh, you know, third down from the top of the Bank of Nova Scotia. So I'm well known to be well-versed and to be well-qualified to speak about what I say. Um, I also think that they know that I don't open my mouth until... I've got evidence and I've done my research. So it's been my experience when I when I take on a case or I deal with a matter that no one speaks out against me because they're afraid to, because they know that I'm probably right. Um, on the matter of, you know, f am I concerned physically, uh, we do travel together always. Um, and he is quite strong. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, we have been told by, uh, you know, police authorities that I need to be, you know, careful. So uh, for the most part, you know, we, you know, we do travel to, together and uh, we try not to expose ourselves. In general, the kind of crime that I'm dealing with is not Russian mob. It's not Italian mob. It is crime that's perpetrated by the heads of capital markets and risk management and CEOs of investment banks. These are highly high standing members of their communities, and so they are not going to be doing anything to me physically. In fact, they're not even going to expose themselves to try and take me on. They just hope I never get any support or, or following. And for the most part, uh, like... Uh, my experience is that we do have the ear of government, notwithstanding the law being on the other side because of the depth of the research is so high. Uh, what we find is that the, they just put their tails between their legs and walk away and find something else uh, to work on. They don't combat us. Um, you know, we did shut down income trusts because we felt that there was abuse and there was not a peep out of a single bank, even though they had underwritten 200 billion of this. And it was, you know, close to 40, 40 or 50 percent of their investment banking revenues came from that source. Once Dr. Rosen and I stood up to say this product, uh, you know, is not regulated and has been sold on a deceptive yield, they just stopped. And I guess they went to asset-backed commercial, <laughs> commercial paper after that. And now that we've said asset-backed commercial paper, you know, was improperly designed, then they didn't stand up to say she's wrong. They just went on, they're off to the next thing. They, they don't tend to, to try and knock me off. <laughs> either professionally or physically. <laughs> and, and also, I think I, we do have armies of support. I think that's fair to say that, you know, an asset-backed commercial paper, we have a committee that has probably 25 people on it. So anytime we need some kind of moral support or professional support on any matter, um, you know, they want to go at me, then there's five victims there saying, you did this, this is how we know you did this, and you're not doing this again, and no one likes to take that face-to-face that -face heat.
Mm -hmm. Hi, Diane. I appreciate your uh, your information that you're giving us, but I, I wanted to ask a question. Was uh, Canadian Pacific uh, uh, Pension involved in that uh, ABCP? I think Canadian Pacific Corporation was, not the pension fund. Not the pension. And they were large. As I recall, I, I'd have to check my, you know, if you leave me an email address, I would have that on my, oh, actually, I might have it here. Afterwards, I believe they owned a substantial amount, but not in the pension fund. The only, um, just so you know how bad this can be, uh, Domtar, for any of you who's worked for Domtar, they have $455 million of the asset-backed commercial paper. More than one-third of their entire pension plan is in this toxic paper. Now, Domtar, the parent company, immediately guaranteed that they were going to replenish the pension fund of its losses. And so uh, the pension fund uh, is protected. However, as you know, the forestry industry is not a very strong industry at this time. So a $455 billion or, um, million dollar burden on the Domtar Corporation is bearing on its ability to finance and to be successful and to weather uh, this current recession. Uh, so, you know, here was a case where one pension plan had over a third, um, and, and the consequence of, of, of that could have been a third cut in pension income. And we'll see what happens if Domtar is able to weather um, the current recession. What do you think the outcome will be when the final payout... Uh um, I'm expecting that the Class A1s and the Class A2s uh, could be close to whole at the maturity. Uh, the Class Bs and the Class Cs, which were sort of lower levels, worth uh, probably, um, uh, you know, as, uh, no principal at all, <laughs> will come back on that. Many of the tracking notes are worthless. Um, I, the whole bundle, looking at the whole thing, taking into account reasonable discount rates, I'm at approximately 60, 65 cents, 60 to 65 cents for long-term runoff value. So I'm not in the camp that says that you're going to get your money back. And the biggest um, area of deficiency is not so much the end principle, it's the fact that you're not getting in any interest between now and 2017. And so the value of an investment is often the present value of the interest, not getting your money back. You know, it, I mean, that they both contribute, but the majority of the value is often how much interest are you getting. Thank you. Um, hello, Diane. My name is uh, Martin Volk. I have a hypothetical question I'd like to put to you. Do you think that this ABCP was really preordained to be garbage, or could it have been a good investment had the subprime mortgage thing not happened? I, I believe it was preordained uh, that you would lose money uh, because of the fact that um, the credit derivatives involved leverage. You insured the credit default damages on... Uh, you know, uh, let's say uh, for every hundred million dollars of collateral savings put in, you were uh, uh, insuring the b bad loans on uh, one uh, billion two hundred and fifty million of assets, and so there would be known credit defaults on that. The premiums that they were paying for that was well below what they should have been, and that the banks would know that. They know they had the bargain of a lifetime in being able to get their defaults covered with a very low premium. And they knew that the customer was putting money in and taking 100% of the risk, in my opinion. 
And so therefore, uh, it's, it's like what is alleged in the United States, that Goldman Sachs and others knew when they put the U.S. subprime into these collateralized debt obligations that were sold to the investing public, they shorted them at the same time so that they could make billions of dollars on product they sold to their customers that they knew was going to go bankrupt. And so I believe it's a, it, it is with the same intent here that they were uh, able to um, effectively uh, get you to pay for their credit defaults knowing that you had 100% of the risk. So in my mind, it was an intentional fraud. Not, uh, I don't think it was a black swan, you know, this idea of black swan. This was a once in 100 year financial crisis that could not have been foreseen. It, the, any financial analyst could examine sort of the history of credit default and know that this was going to be a big problem. And that's what Standard & Poor's said, too. In their report, they said that this product by its design was the source of financial contagion in 2002. And yet, our Bank of Can, our, our OSFI allowed it into the marketplace, and our regulators did not stop it, even though there was a reputable credit rating agency who had said that uh, this design was uh, flawed. So I, you know, I guess I'd be saying it would like if you were an engineer and you designed a bridge and you put the wrong, you know, you were supposed to have a grade of iron and instead you put, um, you know, uh, aluminum, which was pliable. If you were the engineer who built the bridge, you knew that the bridge would last five years and, and then collapse. I would say that you were the engineer who knew it couldn't sustain when you put this product together. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Hi, Diane. Uh, Ian McKenna here. Um, uh, so my question you may have already answered. Um, it strikes me that fraud uh, comes under the criminal law, and yet, from what I've seen in the newspapers and that, uh, criminal lawyers really and the police are generally not too interested in what's going on here. And I just wonder if uh, in a perfect world or even an imperfect world, uh, what can we do about that, uh, you know, where we have uh, these, um, you know, securities commissions that appear to be more in line with the... Uh, you know, the folks that are doing this rather than and so on. But do you have any sort of uh, thoughts on that? that well, uh, I guess Gary Logan, who's the former head of the Corporate Fraud Squad for Toronto Police Services and I, have reached the conclusion, con conclusion that it is hopeless for a securities commission to be effective uh, in deterring fraud because they are too closely aligned with the investment industry. They are paid for from registrations and prospectus filings. Um, and so as a consequence, their master, as they perceive it, and certainly as they've been permitted to control, is the industry. And uh, so since they are so close, and they also delegate to the self-regulator all matters that affect individuals who work with financial advisors. It's 100% delegation. And so uh, it's also because they are so highly vulnerable to corruption and lack of integrity in the enforcement process, we've said, forget it. I don't care what you do there. Let's get a securities crime unit that is independent, 22 expert officers. What we learned in talking about uh, to the prosecutors in the Conrad Black case is there were six of them that took on 60 lawyers with a budget of $100 million, and yet they were successful getting Conrad Black on a criminal prosecution in the Chicago court. It's not 
necessarily how much money is thrown at it. It's get 22 really good people that are allowed to do their job. And so we say, and, and get them out of the claws of the commissions and of the industry and by police who operate under the ethical police code that if a crime is presented to them that they are obliged to investigate and we're determined to have sufficient evidence for a successful prosecution to enter the criminal court for prosecution. There is no such code amongst the regulators, but there is among police. And so the issue at the moment is we just need to put police in place. And it's not working at the RCMP. It's certainly not going to work under Ian McPhail, who's a part-time oversight commissioner. So we have to get it out of the RCMP and convince Mr. Harper and even the Liberal Party that this is necessary for the economic well-being of the country and certainly is necessary for the public safety of its individuals. And we're not asking for a lot of money. We're just asking an empowerment and a structure amongst a, code, a group of people whose code is to do the job. And it, and it is a doable proposition, in our opinion, because we, you know, we we've seen these teams work in the United States on a lean basis. Diane, I understand that <coughs> you can uh, make us leave with a smile if you tell the story about the pig farmer and the minister. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, we first became, uh, on asset back commercial paper, I became aware of the problem when we were on vacation and I heard about a market that froze and then I heard there was a committee that had uh, decided that there could be no sales and they went into a back room and I thought, well, this is very interesting. How could a $32 billion market fail? So I did a lot of uh, research at that time and worked with a lot of governments. We had no idea there was any retail uh, at that time in August of 2007 and it was in approximately Approximately uh, the 1st of March of 2008, uh, we read a National Post article uh, that said that an engineer, Brian Hunter, based in Calgary, had set up a Facebook group. And so um, we started to see the names of people, and we introduced ourselves to Brian Hunter and to a number of people who had become victimized with their life savings. And um, people started to call us uh, when we said we wanted to help. And my husband, Hugh, and I sit side by side in an office, in a, in a home office. And he was on the phone with one gentleman, and I was on the phone with another, and we were having, you know, basically taking their personal story, what had happened, where do they live, what is their profession, and we both kind of hung up the phone at the same time, and I said, I've got a hog farmer in Alberta, and Hugh said, I have a preacher in Alberta, <laughs> and the two of us looked at each other, and we said, okay, we're ready, we can bring this to the international media, and so we coached those two individuals uh, to uh, present their story to Bloomberg, and within 24 hours, we had a story internationally transmitted by Bloomberg from the Canadian journalist that uh, Alberta hog farmer and preacher stall 32 billion dollar uh, deal in Canada. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that was really the beginning of our success. Uh, it was an Alberta farmer, uh, hog farmer, and it was an Alberta preacher uh, who started the process of identifying what had happened to them and shaming the banks uh, who had put them uh, into this, which ultimately led to us getting the largest retail settlement in uh, Canadian history.
So it was an example to us, like the reason, you know, because anybody who's going to take the money of a farmer and a, a preacher has got to be a really bad person. <laughs> and, uh, and it pretty much came out that that was why everyone was on our side, because we knew that uh, someone had, uh, had uh, taken advantage of the salt of the earth. Um, and just another little story about the preacher. Uh, his name was Gary Weber, and I think he was forced church somewhere here in Alberta and he used to um, give interviews and he had lost he and his wife had pretty much everything they had and and you uh, he had been in the energy business before and decided to become a preacher uh, but uh, you know had expected to have the opportunity to be a preacher without making money and then it was all taken fr- uh, from him but every time he did a media interview he would end by saying I hope Hope this story ends according to you know what was in uh, Saint Luke chapter five verse four, and that would be the end of the interview. And so we would be seeing in the Toronto Star Bible verses. <laughs> from Alberta and everybody was running to their Bible to you know to see what what how was this story going to end so he was able to use his own uh, sort of duress to give messages to all of uh, Canadian society uh, about what had happened to them so you know there were a lot of stories like that that we had um, all of which you know ultimately contributed to uh, individuals you know standing up for their rights and um, you know, getting these large organizations to come up with the money. <laughs> well, I don't, well, you must be related to people who are pig farmers. <laughs> uh, what, what have you done to the consumer that I don't know about? <laughs> oh, okay. Well, to my knowledge, your, your pigs haven't killed people, though. Thank you very much. I'm sure we're-